today on Against the Grain. Gandhi is best known for his theory of nonviolent resistance, but he also had strong opinions about education and human development. I'm CS. Purushottama Bilimoria describes the kinds of schooling and training Gandhi advocated, and also the values Gandhi thought should be instilled in young people and in all people, coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. If I say nonviolence and truth and Mahatma Gandhi, what comes to mind might be big protest marches and strict ascetic practices. But nonviolence and truth are, according to today's guest, fundamental to Gandhi's philosophy of education, of what and how young and not so young people should be taught. What did Gandhi think of abstract logic, of teaching the three R's, of manual skills building, vocational training, and the relationship between school and community? Purushottama Bilimoria has written extensively on Gandhian philosophy, including how the Mahatma thought about the education process and how he engaged with thinkers like Tolstoy, Tagore, and John Ruskin. Among other things, Purushottama Bilimoria is lecturer in Jain studies at Cal State Long Beach and visiting scholar in philosophy and religious studies at San Francisco State University. His books include History of Indian Philosophy. When Purushottama and I connected recently, I asked whether Gandhi wrote a lot specifically about education. Uh, he wrote a fair bit, not in a form of a sort of treatise or a, a book uh, as such, although he has a little pamphlet kind of thing called Ne Talim. But he did write a lot when he was addressing some of the issues and giving lectures and at uh, conferences called the Warda Conference. But, you know, you wouldn't find him having written a whole uh, long uh, exegesis on, on education. However, people have worked very hard in extracting his ideas and, and developing them into a, into a form of um, a sustained document on his ideas on education. And I've been one of the persons doing that. Before we get to what Gandhi envisioned or what he wanted to see in terms of how young people were educated, let's talk about his view of the system of education brought to India by the British. So what did Gandhi see that system doing in terms of uh, preparing young people for certain roles or professions? Oh, definitely the British had an agenda. And the agenda was to really train civil servants and to have a class of uh, individuals who would be educated in the English medium, but also in English literature and so on. Or as Lord Macaulay in his famous 1835 minutes had said, Indian in color, but English in education and in literary capabilities. So the British had a a kind of a pedagogical system whereby they would train select number of of Indians or or, or any colonized people for that matter, colonized subjects, and use their uh, skills to run the country, to really run the bureaucratic system, to run railway lines, and the, you know, fill up the colonial office with peons and people doing menial labor and so on with a modicum of education, perhaps. But yes, it was a very elitist kind of a situation. And that was really what Gandhi was opposed to. I mean, he was one of the beneficiaries of it in a way that he went out to England and studied law. But, but that sort of education was not available to each and every individual. And he was one of the first people to come up with the idea that every child, every individual has a right to education. And if the, if the colonial system is going to deny you that, then we have, to, we have to take up the fight. And of course, it was a, a very universalist kind of education as well. It was, you know, the, the kind of curricula that's developed in England somewhere and then brought over 
to India with very utilitarian ends um, and purposes, which was not going to do much good to the local Indian who had to be trained, as Gandhi felt, in the climate of the culture and in the regional medium as much as possible so that they have some connection with the culture rather than be educated in abstract, uh, you know, very distant, remotely related literary uh, or even philosophical and scientific traditions. What did Gandhi think about the teaching from day one of reading and writing in school? Oh, yes, he had definite views about that. I mean, you know, he, he felt that the kind of uh, education system that's based on what's generally known as the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, was really not enough to develop an integrated personality. This was really education of the mind, if you like, but not of the body. And for, to him, the body also is a thinking uh, element. He was on a Cartesian in the sense of having a sharp separation between the mind and the body. So there's sort of an, an integral, if you like, system of education is what he would prefer. Again, it, it reverts back to his, uh, his suspicion that the kind of education based on an excessive emphasis on literacy, uh, literary training, uh, mathematics and so forth was, was rather abstract and not connected with culture, with the tradition and with the hands, you know, the hands need to do things. Um, what Aristotle would have called phrenesis um, uh, was a very, very important element of, of education as, as, as far as Gandhi was, was concerned. Um, he, he was more in that sense like Dewey uh, taking a very pragmatic approach to education in which one learned about one's uh, duty, uh, but also number of virtues. Uh, so, you know, th that binary that, that we have, that we see in the sort of modernist, humanist uh, project of education is not something that Gandhi was very, very keen about. Uh, so in short, yes, he, he, saw, he saw that as an imported form of education, which neither spoke to the traditional forms of education nor the current needs of, of the Indian society. When you speak of a focus on hands, again, this is just part of what Gandhi was advocating, but this focus on using one's hands as one learns, as one is being schooled, uh, does that mean that it's about uh, kind of hand-eye coordination and uh, you know, motor coordination and all that, or is it about learning specific skills that involve physical activity that involves the hands? I think in a way both. I mean, he was very conscious, very aware of sort of kinetic um, theories, you know, the need to have well-coordinated movement, because that ties in also with the moral character and so on. You know, he said, he would say how one sits, how one speaks, how one moves, how one talks, how one sleeps, how one eats, all these things bear on a, the, the development of a moral character. And, and all this is going to become very, very important later on in his Satyagraha, in his nonviolent action theories as well. So yes, the, the important element of the movement of the body, coordination, if, if you like, of the mind and the body, and the different functions and parts of the body are very, very important for him. And so, you know, diet is also important because there is some, some impact of the diet on our physical capacities, on, on the energy that we have and that we need uh, to move around, to move about as well. So if, you know, one overeats, as, as Gandhi was concerned, one becomes lethargic and uh, is not able to perform the sort of functions that are required in, in everyday living, let alone in the skills that are required when one has to be industrious or or be engaged in vocational activities. So yes, developing skills uh, uh, which are part of developing our capabilities are very, very important. And by hand, it's, it's a symbol. I mean, he's using the symbol of the spinning wheel as well, the kadi. You know, there, these are symbols of, of actions and activities that one does, both as an individual, but also as a, as a member of, of a social fabric, as a member of a community. 
whereby one contributes something to the to the development of uh, basic necessities of life. These things are important. And he felt that everybody has a role. He was in that sense of a, quite a socialist thinker that everyone has a role to play. You know, you can't have some people just sitting in office all day and other people tilling the soil. He thought that there was, there should be a flow over between the two. So yes, um, handcraft, uh, skills, vocational, he may have over overemphasized, but I think his ultimate goal was that means and ends should be combined, that, you know, one, one does not simply uh, wait for the ends to be delivered by someone else. One has to be part of the process or the participate in the means as well. And uh, the, the other was that one would then know what it takes, what it means to actually produce something, to do something, to make something, even sandals or cleaning toilets for that matter. So if Gandhi related, if he connected manual training, work with the hands, training with the hands to the inculcation of values, the instilling in young people of certain dispositions of mind, habits, right values, what kinds of values or principles or attitudes did he see, did he want young people to glean or to develop in association with their training in an ideal school, in his opinion, of, you know, kind of manual arts? Right, yes. Well, one might think that uh, values and virtues are not related to the using of, uh, of hands and um, engaging in vocational activities. But I think, I think th there is a connection, and Gandhi makes that connection. So he would say, you know, values such as apigraha, which is um, conditional possessiveness, as he would say, one would know that acquiring too many things and being lured by uh, what we call commodification or any kind of sort of consumerism where one covets things for one's own ends rather than sharing uh, with others is one of the defects of, of modernity. Um, and the dispositions of being able to appreciate uh, what it takes to make something and what's involved in, and the sweat that goes into the manufacture of, of artifacts, of, of anything for that matter. Or if one is tilling the soil, one begins to appreciate the contribution that nature makes, the, the importance of the natural processes uh, the aesthetics of it as well. Uh, these are these are uh, important dispositions that one has then towards sustainability, towards preserving nature. So these are you know these are very important uh, elements uh, to be able to sort of milk a cow. One would sort of appreciate where milk comes from, whereas to go into a supermarket and pick up a bottle of milk uh, is, doesn't have the same value attached to that quote unquote commodity. Uh, and there are various other examples that you know one can, one can give as well. So, for, for example, in the Tolstoy farm uh, that he had established in South Africa, Phoenix Farm as well. So everybody had a role in building the houses or the premises uh, that were required for the schools, for the education, for living, the living quarters, but also working in the printing press, uh, making sandals I mentioned earlier and growing vegetables, looking after the animals and so on. It is quite interesting to, you know, to, to live in the farm, one begins to acquire certain sort of values uh, about the environment as well. Uh, whereas he felt that the urban dwellers had, had no idea, had no connections with nature, had no connections with their own selves because they were too busy engaged in uh, the externals, as you call them, you know, running after things. So, doing abstract work um, uh, and, and so forth. So that, that kind of connection that he, he, he looked for, the connection of the individual with the individual, with the social uh, environment and with the natural environment, these all come together for him. Uh, and then there is contemplation and so forth, which are the sort of moments where one pauses to, to then have some inward exercise, some reflection on what it is that one's been doing, you know, what has one achieved throughout the whole day. So there's a sort of combination of morality, aesthetics, 
and the physicalness of one's, you know, embodied condition. Purushottama Bilimoria joins me on Against the Grain. I'm C.S. Song. He's a lecturer in Jain Studies at California State University, Long Beach. He's a visiting scholar in philosophy and religious studies at San Francisco State University. He's a longtime visiting scholar and lecturer in legal studies at UC Berkeley. He wears many other hats that I'll tell you as the hour goes on, and he joins us to talk about Gandhi and specifically Gandhi's ideas relating to education and human development. You, I've been reading an essay you wrote about Gandhi on education, and you cite certain criticism that was directed at Gandhi for his promotion of this sort of learning with the hand, this sort of uh, focus on vocational training, in addition to other things, but there was a, an emphasis, as you're saying, on vocational training. One was that this kind of training would stunt intellectual growth. Another was that Gandhi was too occupied with sort of bread and butter issues. And another was that he was sort of advocating a, a primitive economy, right? He's, he's stressing this sort of village self-sufficiency, traditional practices within uh, villages and communities that would not move people out of poverty. How did Gandhi respond to these criticisms? Yeah, no, these are very valid uh, criticisms, and Gandhi would confront them. One of these criticisms came from his own very close friend, uh, Ramindranath Tagore, who was also experimenting with alternative forms of education, which would counter the colonial uh, apparatus and the colonial structure that had been brought in by the British. Uh, they were very interested in each other's experiments, uh, if you like, in education and, and, the, and the theories that were being developed, you know, along the lines. Um, Tagore's main objection was that, uh, you know, he used the example of the birds. They get up in the morning and they don't go hunting for food. They sing and uh, play and so on uh, before they begin their the, the, the daily um, scavenging, if you like, of food, perhaps, you know, search for food. Well, Gandhi responded that, well, that may be all right for, for animals who are, uh, or birds who are well fed the night before, but in the morning, people wake up hungry and uh, they, need to, they need to do something about finding means of, of, for production of food and the nutrients that, that human beings need. But on the other hand, he also stress that there has to be a, a balance between, you know, play and training. It wasn't all training. There was play as well. Um, and uh, the binary that we have between work and leisure, or relaxation and so on, Gandhi thought was absurd. Um, work should be of a kind where one works sort of contemplatively or restfully at the same time rather than strenuously. So, you know, this sort of idea of working eight days and having, uh, uh, sorry, eight hours and, and the rest, rest of the time trying to manufacture laser uh, was not his, his idea ideal at all. Uh, they have to be uh, somehow combined. It was very interesting ideas and people are exploring these ideas. Uh, well, Marx was very interested in what would happen at the, you know, the utopia comes about, you know, there would be increasing leisure and less uh, time spent on work. Um, and I don't think Gandhi would agree that the emphasis on vocation and so on would stunt the intellect. Uh, he was very clear about the role of the intellect and the use of the intellect in, in, in many areas, um, uh, but also the development of the moral character. Uh, reason was very important for him, was how he defined conscience. Conscience of the individual uh, works through one's reasoning powers, uh, one thinks about things, one uh, contemplates, reflects on before one acts in, an, in a given situation. Uh, and these, these were part of the training, this would become part of the training in the school environment or in the ashram, as he would, he would call it, it's a very it's open uh, school, schools without borders, uh, which is something that, that Tagore was also experimenting with. So, uh, in, in the pedagogy, uh, what he called basic education, Gandhi had room for, for cultivation of 
um, of aesthetics, of art, of play, if you like. Um, and so, so these are uh, very, very important, uh, important elements. But, but that he, uh, you know, th that he put, put too much emphasis on a sort of primitive form of production. Now, he, he had a theory of economics as well, and, and that could be a subject of another discussion we could have. Um, it was quite radical in his own, own way. So he felt that industrialization, the kind of emphasis on mass technology, uh, excessive use of resources of nature, was going to lead to what today we would call climate change. I mean, he was very, very, very conscious of environmental degradation, the excessive production of carbon and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was something that he himself was pretty intolerant of. And that's why he lived in the outskirts of, of the cities, if he could. And the village economy, he thought, was really the way to go about, was to develop from the grounds, as it were, at very grassroots level, sort of cooperative movements, movements that are not then taken over by large corporations or multinationals or corporates. Um, and these are done at very basic levels of the agrarian system, which you wanted preserved, of course. So th there are th there are there are a number of elements in in Gandhi which uh, you know which, which echo uh, in the thoughts of uh, various other educationists and, and, and economic uh, reformists as well. And at the end, I would say that that his project for education was was actually more political than people sort of realized. It was to to develop a right and an instrument or vehicle for political reform and action, you know, even resistance, which he experimented with in his ashrams. So there's this integration of, of pedagogy, of education, of vocation, and of uh, intellectual critical development, which when, when it's needed, could lead to criticism, uh, resistance, and uh, political action at the same time. His name is Purushottama Bilimoria. He is a scholar, a teacher, a writer. He works in the fields of philosophy and culture, history, legal studies, religious studies. He's honorary fellow at the University of Melbourne in philosophical and historical studies, recent Fulbright Nehru visiting professor at Ashoka University. And he is lead scientist of the Purushottama Laboratory at the Center for the Study of Philosophy and Culture at the People's Friendship University of Russia. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. And just, just reading something that sums up some of what you've been saying, Gandhi advocated a scheme in which socially useful, productive work becomes the center of the educational process and inculcates the dignity of manual labor or action per se in conjunction with, rather than being divorced from, intellectual learning. Gandhi, you write, first read the English philosopher and critic John Ruskin in South Africa, when he was in South Africa in 1904. And some of what Ruskin wrote relates to what we've been talking about. What did what did Gandhi find interesting and important in, in Ruskin's work that relates to uh, this issue of education and vocational training and manual work? Gandhi certainly read uh, Ruskin very closely. And uh, what he was intrigued by, you know, even in a conservative writer like Ruskin, was the value he placed on labor. Uh, you know, the, very, the sheer fact that labor should have a value that calls for respecting the dignity of the individual um, rather than thinking of the individual as someone who simply provides labor as the need of another person or something to be exploited, which is really the origins of slavery, uh, serfdom, uh, and bonded labor, all of which Gandhi was very aware of. Um, whether he read Marx on labor or not, Marx and Engels, I don't know, but there are certain a certain uh, resonances here with both Ruskin's thinking on labor and what Gandhi takes from Ruskin as well. So he learned to value labor, the importance of labor, and the dignity that should be attached to labor, which is something he found lacking in the, in the caste system, particularly uh, with the categorization of so-called untouchables, 
um, in the society, you know, who was sort of who were used as scavengers, who were used uh, for, to provide sort of fodder for the Brahmins and the upper caste uh, without being paid substantially, without being compensated for their labor. And there was no dignity attached to their labor at all. And we know that in the, in the US, from the way the slaves were treated for the, for the carnal desires of their masters, as well as for the uh, labor, which is sort of exploited almost to the point of the death of the, of the individual. Uh, nothing was given back. They were not even regarded as proper human beings, not written in the constitution and so on. Um, and the other is, uh, how do you classify labor uh, that different individuals um, contribute uh, either in manufacturing or in making things or in the services they provide? And either there shouldn't be a distinction between the labor of a menial person, you know, doing manual labor and the labor uh, that's exerted by, say, a lawyer or someone of a more elite uh, class. So there would be sort of a leveling uh, rather than a hierarchy of the values we attach to the labor and the worth we attach to and how we compensate for them. And the third thing was that he thought, you know, each one should be capable of doing, you know, any one of the tasks that's entailed, that's involved. Uh, a lawyer, a teacher, a, a, a doctor should be able to, you know, without a resistance and without feeling repugnant, uh, clean toilets, um, do all, all, all kinds of work that that's usually left to the people in the lower caste or the lower classes to do, or, 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 or women for that matter, in the domestic, domestic context. Uh, so these are things that were very, very important. And Gandhi put this into practice uh, when he reached South Africa. Um, there was no sort of division of labor of that kind. I mean, division of labor, yes, but not divided in terms of class or value or payment uh, of, of different magnitude when he was setting up the, uh, the so-called ashrams, the Tolstoy and Phoenix farms. That uh, remained with Gandhi throughout his life. And people say that you know, he, was, he, he was not totally anti-caste. He wanted to retain some form of caste, but what he didn't want was caste being replaced by class, which is equally exploitative. The structure of class is, is detrimental to a egalitarian uh, democratic society. And, and much of it's based on exploitation of labor. Let's talk about nonviolence because your argument is that Gandhian education is rooted in nonviolence and in truth and in peace. And we could talk about any of those aspects, attributes uh, for hours and hours. Um, but nonviolence, and I want to go at it in a, a certain way because you seem in a piece you wrote about Gandhi on education to suggest that Tolstoy and his notion of non-resistance to evil uh, played a role in how Gandhi, especially I think as a younger thinker, began to think about uh, nonviolence. So what did Tolstoy mean by non-resistance to evil, and, and how did Gandhi uh, take it up? Gandhi himself called Tolstoy's approach a sort of passive resistance, you know, the sort of technique that well, barely a technique, it's more an attitude that Tolstoy was interested in developing, which comes from the Christian idea of turning the other cheek. Um, so one doesn't respond with violence or anger uh, or frustration uh, at a situation. It's more likely that one withdraws uh, rather than cooperate with the, uh, with the evil that one confronts in a situation uh, where there is injustice or where there is uh, you know, a right is um, violated of, of a particular individual, or perhaps entitlement if they were not talking about rights that early in Tolstoy's time, or quite in Tolstoy's case himself. So it doesn't sort of really augur for a, a direct action of any kind. It's more, uh, as the term passive indicates, you know, one, one is more passive about it, but there is resistance. Uh, there is moving away from the, from the situation. It's not unlike Thoreau, who uh, refused to pay poll taxes, but you know wasn't out uh, doing sort of anything particular about that. It was a, it was a protest. It was a way of making one's one's disagreement with the situation or one's disillusionment, disenchantment 
with the with the process that one confronts in such a situation. Whereas Gandhi felt that, similarly with the case of the Jains as well, the Jains had a precept or a, a, a virtue of nonviolence built into the traditional religious system, into their moral training as well. But that again was a not doing thing, you know, not doing violence, uh, not doing injury, and it, the buck sort of stops there. Whereas Gandhi felt that there had to be some kind of a positive approach to this. One could do something with nonviolence. Um, uh, one could build it into an action or perhaps into the quest for truth in a situation or quest for justice in a situation, uh, quest for social justice, asserting one's right and, and making sure that it's realized in the, in the situation. Uh, but this process or this strategy could, could take place with a firm commitment to nonviolence. And that's what he called soul force. So he integrated nonviolence um, or made it supervenient on the significant engagement of satyagraha. That's what he called it initially, satyagraha, soul force as it's called, but could also be called a force to truth, if you like, or the power to truth as it came to be called during the civil rights movement or soul power. Um, so one has to see Gandhi's idea of nonviolence not as a standalone uh, virtue or a, or a strategy, but as part of a, a, a moral disposition, um, which is also political in the sense that there is a, an element of resistance in it, but and also with an intention to reform, to bring the, um, the, the adversary or the person perpetuating, perpetrating the injustice to their conscience, to the sense that there is injustice here, something needs to be done about this. And that's the action part, if you like. That's, that's the, people would call it the activist or the activism element in Gandhi's uh, idea of nonviolent truth force. Yeah, so your suggestion is that nonviolence isn't just a tactic in amidst activism against a, let's say, an opponent, an oppressor, but something that needed to be uh, cultivated. I imagine this is something, this ties into what you were, uh, what you've written about the importance of nonviolence to, to education, to nonviolence being a principle that is somehow instilled in young people while they are being schooled. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So, so it, it is a bit like the disposition of peace that, say, you know, a Buddhist monk growing up in a monastery would be, uh, would be educated in, would be trained in. It is very much part of the, the character. It has to become ingrained, as it were, in the individual. Um, it's uh, quite remarkable uh, if we you know, look back at the courage and the, the forthrightness, the steadfastness of some of the people who led the protests, for example, the salt march in India. Uh, quite remarkable. I mean, the people were not, you know, were not just a bunch of people who jumped out onto the street and were, you know, leading a protest and a march. No, they were very disciplined uh, individuals who seemed to have a kind of a, a moral aura about them as well. Because um, they were trained, they were trained in nonviolence within a sort of a contemplative framework, within a framework in which they could feel uh, the peace at the same time. Uh, Gandhi writes about that. He talks about that, and and there was there, there are case, situations where uh, people had gathered for a, a, for for a nonviolent protest, and Gandhi said, "Well, you know, nonviolence is not the only thing that we need to be concerned about here, but also the feeling of of peace, of of of, of wanting to achieve something for the greater good, rather than um, a, a, a show of an individual's resentment." Uh, in that situation. So yes, it's, uh, it's a sort of a lifelong process for him. It has to become part of the training. It has to begin uh, with basic education, uh, right from childhood uh, onwards to the time when one becomes, say, a, a political Zoom, if you like, um, in the sort of Aristotelian sense, but, uh, but at the same time grounded in the principles of Satyagraha.
so it's it's a it's it's a kind of a technique, an empowering technique, but a technique that also has a spiritual side to it, uh, as well as a very strong moral side. And it's something that Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, uh, Andrew Young, people who took up nonviolent resistance during the civil rights movement knew knew very well, knew very well that there is a lot more involved. They drew, of course, from some of the Christian uh, practices, the Christian prayer, uh, uh, devotion, or a gospel uh, singing and so forth. Um, but they were aware that the soul element is not just a, a vague reference to a, an entity that hovers somewhere you know, uh, above the body, but it's something that is a seed of power that has to be cultivated so it pervades not only the individual, but extends out into the social arena as well. You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. My guest is Purushottama Bilimoria. He is, among other things, a lecturer in chain studies at California State University, Long Beach, and a visiting scholar in philosophy and religious studies at San Francisco State University. We are talking about some things that Purushottama has written about Gandhi on education, on human development, and, you know, a lot of this relates, of course, to Gandhi's understanding of uh, nonviolence, for example, and truth. And in fact, you are very interested in the connection between nonviolence and truth in Gandhian philosophy. And before we talk about, about that, whether one is a means to an end, whether they're both kind of on a par with each other in terms of, of values or ideas or notions, uh, let's talk about truth. Um, what did Gandhi, so, so truth and the striving toward truth is absolutely fundamental to Gandhian philosophy. What did Gandhi mean by truth? Uh, it's a much debated question um, in philosophical circles. I mean, some people think that it's a, it's a pretty empty kind of term that he, uh, that he uses. Others think that, no, it's a, it's a very pregnant term. It's got lo lots of uh, nuances to it. Um, but he's a pretty traditional kind of a thinker in this sense. You know, it's not a sort of correspondence theory of truth or truth that might lead to a, a large uh, a metaphysical system. Uh, no, not at all. I think truth for him was a very moral, uh, had a very moral content. It was about being truthful in the sense of not only not lying and so forth, but being true to one's perception about situations and one's correcting one's perception if it's not, not verifiable or, or does not conform with things as they are. Uh, and that would mean social reality as well, um, and political reality too. Truth also was actually, for him, a, a, a means by which one unearths untruth in situations. So being aware of injustices and so forth is being true to a situation. Uh, being aware of one's right in a situation is being true to that situation. Uh, being aware of where one's right is violated, uh, that's also being truth to oneself. Knowing one's duty in a, in a, in a particular situation uh, is also truth. So those are sort of approaches he had. It was a very pragmatic theory of truth, if you like. It's not an abstract form of reason, sort of judgment, as in Kant, uh, for example, uh, working through maxims and um, uh, sort of criteria which are detached from reality. Uh, that was not how he, he went about things. Uh, and yet, you know, curiously, there's a lot of emphasis uh, on truth in, in Gandhi. And, and one sort of, you know, has to see the whole, um, his whole philosophy to kind of begin to appreciate what he, what he was getting at. Um, you can't pull him aside and say, well, Mr. Gandhi, give me a theory of truth and the criteria uh, of truth today, as, as we do in philosophy. It just doesn't happen. Uh, in this in this context, which is why I, I align his ideals, his principles of truth, with his other principles of nonviolence, of moral character, of education, um, as political at the same time. Yes, some people would say that for Gandhi, nonviolence was a was a means to achieve truth, a means toward truth. Do you do you agree with that? Yes and no. I, I mean, you, you know, you can't just have sort of a, a means uh, if which is used to sort of justify an end. Sometimes, right? I think the means and ends must 
cohere, must go together. Um, so I, I emphasize, you know, nonviolence um, not as a means that, that stands on its own or as a technique of, of some kind, um, but it, it must be informed by and, and integrated into the frame of, of truth uh, or, or a larger end, uh, if you like. And Gandhi certainly saw it that way. I mean, he, he, he did say sort of rhetorically uh, that truth is the end and nonviolence is the means. Um, but I think he, he meant a bit more than that. He meant nonviolence is the force part in the uh, satyagraha, the truth force that he called it. And when he was looking for the term satyagraha, he was looking for a term for his uh, method, uh, he wasn't thinking of a separation of truth and nonviolence, the, the way to, by which truth could be achieved and grounded. The content of truth is as much nonviolence as it is to achieve justice in a situation or whatever the end might be. Uh, as, you know, as Kant very famously pointed out, the means cannot justify the end. The, the end and the means must cohere. And, and that was precisely Gandhi's point as well. Purushottama Bilimoria joins us. You can find the spelling of his name on againstthegrain.org. If government could act unjustly, and certainly Gandhi understood that government can act unjustly, what did Gandhi think of government-controlled schooling? That's an interesting question. I think that his view would be exactly the same as, you know, anything that's government or state controlled, uh, that if it serves the end of the state more than the, the individual and the society, uh, then it's, it's not, of, not of value. Um, it's not the way to go about, to go about things. It would be just becoming another bureaucratic um, instrument or institution or institute, if you like, in the hands of the state. So um, the civil service education, for example, uh, was all conducted through government schools. Um, and that was the particular purpose, purpose of that. Um, there were, of course, a number of very good state schools around the place. Um, but there were, there were primarily for the elite for um, creating a, a, a civil class society uh, out of the educated uh, selected educated people. They were not for the masses. Um, and the state has limited resources and limited powers. And I think his, his idea was to, was to actually begin from the bottom. It's from not top down, but from bottom up. Uh, and that's where the people, the masses, have to take the responsibility. And it would have to be schools without borders uh, in, in, in very literal sense that, uh, that the state is more interested in creating borders around its institutes to protect those institutes uh, and to perpetrate their own, uh, its own, own ends and purposes. Whereas the kind of education system that he had in mind would be integrated with the processes, the lifestyle, the, the irking out livelihood at the village level, at the level, of, at, the level at which people actually live and, and sleep and dream and so forth. Uh, rather than what the state might desire for them in the more abstract uh, pursuits. So you're saying that he advocated a kind of decentralized, perhaps a, a radically decentralized form of education, system of education. Yes, that's right. I mean, for, for him, you know, everything had to be more or less decentralized. Economy, schooling, uh, production, as well as medical care, if you like, something that we, ha we haven't um, talked about. He was also very interested in health and, and well-being of the individual and of animals as well. What happens when you centralize is that it, it, they become powerhouses in their own right. Uh, we see that with the medical system in advanced societies, where they're controlled by either the state, um, and less so by the state in, in more modern times, by, by corporations and so forth, which, which actually was uh, just a mirror image of the state as far as you know, Gandhians are concerned, would be concerned because they serve the state more than the people, uh, or there's some kind of a relationship between the state and corporations uh, where they support each other. So yes, a decentralized system of education where everyone had the, would have the right to education, um, 
Whereas the state system, you know, might be more selective, might serve the elites. Uh, this was his sort of experience, of course, with the, you know, the colonial system. There was no other state uh, in India, you know, until after the independence, and he didn't quite live to see that. Uh, so he had no idea uh, what other ways the state would operate. He had, he had some idea, which is why he was interested in the constitution and a new kind of Swaraj or self-sufficient, self-governing state. But the idea of self-sufficiency had to come down to the village levels as well. And self-sufficiency is something which uh, had to be taken up in the education system. People had to be educated to be self-sufficient. And, and for that, they need to be aware of, of, of what are the uh, insufficiencies, what are the things that are lacking in people's lives that need to be uh, developed, produced, and brought about. Um, so yes, uh, decentralization is a very important term in, in Gandhian um, uh, political framework, for sure. You referred earlier, Purushottama, to the political element of Gandhi's vision of education. Uh, to what extent did Gandhi encourage students to participate in, in protest, in nonviolent protest? Oh, oh yes. Um, he, uh, he, uh, he was uh, quite clear, and there were situations where he would say, while you're doing your vocational training and so on, uh, playing in the play fields uh, uh, and taking lectures and so on, you should also be prepared to come out onto the streets and participate. Um, and students did um, from his schools. They, they joined the active resistance campaigns in the streets quite consistently, actually. There, was, there wasn't, wasn't something that Gandhi discouraged. In fact, he encouraged that. Because this was part of the training as well, that they'd have to be trained as satyagrahis. Uh, so how do you train to become a satyagrahi? By remaining inside a classroom between four walls, you would have no idea what's going on outside. So when there was a cotton mill strikes uh, and so on, the students would come out uh, and join the, the protest movements. Uh, and so it was important for them to, to know what it means to be part of a, a resistance movement uh, and be be engaged in active resistance, um, even in a small way. Later on, it becomes very important as the home rule movement and the independence freedom movement increases uh, as, it, uh, as it grows. Uh, these are the children who are going to become adults by that time, and their cooperation would be, would, would be necessary, would be very important. So it was also part of sort of non-cooperative movement. So if they were in state schools and so forth, it was one way of showing the non-cooperation with the state is by boycotting the schools. Uh, that was so, sort of an important element. But if they were not uh, state schools, they were ashrams, then they would still be participating in the resistance movement in a way of supporting the movement, but also learning something from participating in those movements. You write that Gandhi's educational philosophy had a significant impact internationally beyond the borders of India, and you cite specifically uh, some locations in sub-Saharan Africa and also in Israel. Can you elaborate on that? Right. Well, um, so, so take the Israel first, chronologically. Um, so one of the persons that worked with him in South Africa, uh, it was more, more in the Phoenix farm, I, I would think, was a man called Kallenbach, who was um, a Jewish friend of his, who went back um, after Gandhi left uh, and, and sometime later, when Israel was formed, and he helped set up the kibbutz movement there, the, the kibbutz being the commune sort of system, as, as you know, the hippies here uh, call them. But there were sort of settlements that were uh, very localized uh, cooperative systems, uh, which had their own economic base, and they were self-sustaining. So. And they had an education system that was built into the kibbutz um, settlements themselves. So Kallenbach is said to have taken some of Gandhi's ideas, sort of mitigated through uh, the influence of Martin Buber as well. Um, so that was one influence that uh, one could attribute to Gandhi. Now in the sub-Saharan context, um, Botswana and uh, um, Swaziland, I think you mentioned, uh, Zimbabwe rather, um, they were interested after they gained their independence, you know, from from Rhodesia to these other 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 countries, 
we're interested in productive education and how, how, how could we train and educate our children so that they could be uh, both farmers uh, at the same time as civil servants and doctors at the same time as well. They, they went to a, a Gandhian schools and Gandhian educators and learned some of these, uh, some of these ideas. Uh, in fact, I was asked to write for them as well. So, and in fact, they published one of my articles on uh, Gandhi's productive education. So there was very clear um, interest and uh, uh, so Gandhi's ideas were being put into practice. There's various other countries as well. So I mean, uh, South America that had adopted uh, Gandhian principles alongside John Dewey's ideas of sort of pragmatic education. The irony is that uh, had decreasing, diminishing influence in India itself. But there are movements now where Gandhian ideas are being, uh, are being taken more seriously uh, and has some, has some impact on the Bill of Education that's passed more recently where they recognize the right of the child's education from elementary to the age of 14 or, or higher which is basically Gandhi's own, own, own idea. This is in India, right? Uh, this is in India, yes, the Bill of Education that passed under, uh, under the Congress government. Purushottama Bilimoria, he is a scholar, a teacher, honorary fellow at the University of Melbourne in philosophical and historical studies, visiting scholar in philosophy and religious studies at San Francisco State University, and lecturer in Jain studies at Cal State Long Beach. Purushottama, thank you so much for your work, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, CS. Um, good to be with you, and thank you for having me. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, as Albert Einstein once said, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.